Amen. So I want us to think about the good life and what it consists of in three ways. Number one, being founded on the gospel. Number two, arming ourselves with the attitude of Christ. And number three, focusing on Christ. So first, the gospel foundations, being founded on the gospel. And it's there in the first verse. Therefore, and remember those important connecting words. And then he says it again. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body. Peter's going to show us how to live the good life, but he wants to keep the cross before us. Have you noticed that about Peter? Really about all the biblical authors, they will continually root us back to the cross and ground us in the cross. Since Christ suffered, we do these things because Jesus took our place. Since he was our substitute, he just continues to point us back. He just did it in verse 18. Look there last week. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. What was that? Five verses? Whatever it was, it was much too long. He's got to mention it again. And this section is full of exhortations on how we are to live. So Peter wants to remind us again that we're called to do good works, not to gain God's love or favor or acceptance, but because you already have God's love and favor and acceptance because of the Jesus death on the cross. So he starts, since Christ suffered. Then he's going to tell us about the good life. And he starts by saying, we should arm ourselves with the attitude of Christ. Secondly, look at there at verse one again. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, Arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. Peter's already called us this. Have the attitude of Christ. He said in chapter 2, verse 21, follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Follow his example. And so now he says, arm yourself with the attitude. And it's militaristic language. Arm yourself. This is military imagery used for the process and preparation for battle. And so what Peter's saying is get serious. The Christian life is war. I think one of the reasons the American church is so anemic is because we view it like a cruise ship rather than a battleship. Think about the differences. What are you looking for when you're considering a cruise ship? It's usually you, right? Whatever's going to comfort you most. What caters to you? What makes you comfortable? How fancy it is. Now contrast that with what you want in a battleship. You're not too worried about comfort. You're worried about strategy. You're worried about your leader knowing his authority. You're worried about the right direction. Clear instructions. And too many so-called Christians are more of an audience than they are an army. They're more consumers rather than contributors. And Peter says, arm yourself. Get ready for the battle. Have this attitude. It's going to be hard. It's not easy. Living the faithful Christian life is war. It's not war against people. It's often war against ourselves, right? War against our own sin. And so he says, have the attitude of Jesus. Or much like Hebrews 12 says, have the resolve of Jesus, fixing your eyes on him the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes on that, Jesus. Arm yourself with the same attitude, the same way of thinking, because, the Spirit says, here, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Does that mean Christians can be finished with sin in this life? Well, no. 
Clearly not. The Bible is very clear that our ongoing life will be a battle. James 3, 2 says we all stumble in many ways. Galatians 5 says that there's the flesh and there's the spirit and they desire what is contrary to one another. And that characterizes our life in this time between the first and second comings and this overlap of the ages. This already not yet. We will have to battle sin. The flesh and the spirit wage war. Progress in Christ likeness is slow, sometimes painfully slow. So he's not saying we can be finished with sin. Well, what does he mean then? Some people say that this little phrase here, whoever suffers is done with sin, refers to Jesus. Jesus suffered and he's done with sin, but Jesus never had an issue with sin. Now, Peter's talking about believers, but he's not saying that we're completely done sinning if you suffer. He's saying that if you're so committed to Jesus that you're willing to suffer, then you're finished with sin. You have drawn a line in the sand. Your allegiance is clear. If you're willing to suffer, you're all in. You've chosen Christ over the world, even if it costs you. If you suffer for the faith, you've turned from a life of sin. You've made up your mind. So I want to ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, friends, have you resolved? Have you drawn a line in the sand or are you still pursuing the world yet coming on Sundays or are you trying to straddle the world and Christ? This morning the Lord is calling you to make up your mind, to be done with it. Put all your chips in. Doesn't mean you won't sin anymore, but now you will be at war with your sin. You're no longer at peace with sin. Now you repent, you turn from sin and turn to the Lord. And he tells us more of what he means there in the next verse. Look at verse 2. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Your life is different. If you've come to Christ, if you've genuinely been saved, your life will be different. You have been born again. You've had a whole new start. Whole new values, whole new lifestyle. You no longer live for evil human desires. And when you fall into it, you turn from it and you hate it. You're being transformed. You're now taking thoughts captive, seeking to redirect your thoughts and your desires, wanting to have your affections on Jesus and the goodness of his grace. Now you live for the will of God. His will is where you want to be. You're seeking him. You're seeking him and his word. You're centering your life on Jesus Christ. He is at the center. You're now off the throne and he's on the throne. You are no longer his co-pilot. I hate those stickers. I carry a Sharpie in my car. Anytime I see those stickers, I just mark it out. (laughs) Just kidding. I don't do that, but I want to. If he's your co-pilot, someone's in the wrong seat. We're in a stretcher in the back. We're not helping him drive. Now you live for him, not your will, but his will be done. And brothers and sisters, you cannot live for the will of God if you don't know the will of God. And you won't know the will of God if you're not in the word of God regularly. A few weeks ago, might have been two weeks ago, I don't even know what month it is anymore, but Taylor and Scott and I, and uh, we went to the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. It was my first one to go to, and a lot of business happens. By the way, there's been a lot of press, uh, a lot of crazy perspectives. Let me just say we were more encouraged than discouraged. And speaking of at home, I'm actually really optimistic about the future of our seminary here in Fort Worth. But that's another story for another day. One of the things they did was the last year they commissioned what they called a task force to examine our churches within the Southern Baptist Convention to see how we're doing with evangelism and discipleship. And the results were disheartening. 
They, they did a huge study and they saw that over the last 20 years, we've baptized in the Southern Baptist Convention a little over 20, I mean, over 7 million people. Baptized 7.1 million people. Now, studying that, that's one thing, and maybe you want to celebrate, but they saw at the very same time over the last 20 years, in terms of attendance, we've actually lost 20,000 people. Do the math there. Baptize 7.1 million, yet lose 20,000. Something's not working. It's because we've been focusing on decisions rather than disciples. And so part of this task force was to say, okay, how can we take next steps? And what they found is there's only 45% of professing Christians actually engage the word of God on a regular basis. Well, no wonder we're not having disciples. You're not a disciple if you're not following Jesus. You can't follow Jesus if you're not hearing from Jesus through his word. And so they want this goal now, and I want Southside to be part of this goal. And they're calling it the 80 by 20 challenge. So they're saying right now, if about 45% of the members of Southern Baptist churches are engaging the word on a regular basis, 80 by 20, 2020, can we move that number from 45% to 80%? And so that's the goal. And so I want to encourage you, if you are not regularly engaging the word of God, reading it, memorizing it, meditating on it, begin. And if you're like me, you need a plan, just Google Bible plans. You have the little version app, there's hundreds of plans. Get a plan and just start engaging, even if it's just 10 minutes a day, five days a week. Let me encourage you. We all have time. The issue is priority. So let me encourage you. If you want to live for the will of God, we've got to know the will of God. We know the will of God from the word of God. And if you're following now, you live for the will of God because you've spent enough time living for yourself. Look at verse 3. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. This is enough already. Get all in. Stop with the unconstrained desires. Stop the debauchery. Stop the lust. Stop the drunkenness. Stop the carousing. You're no longer a pagan. Really what he's saying is self-control. All of these things really are a lack of moral self-constraint. Lack of self-control. So if you're a believer, your life needs to be different than it was when you were a pagan. He said that very clearly in chapter 1. Flip over a couple pages. Look at chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Do not conform. To your previous desires. You live differently now. Now you're at war. You're arming yourself. Enough with this stuff, he says. Enough with the detestable idolatry. And it's only the Judeo-Christian tradition and then Islam, which is a later parasite, that's condemned idolatry. Most cultures of the world, including ours today, has been what can be called polytheistic, many gods, and pluralistic, many viewpoints. And it's the way that's the air we breathe today. All views are accepted except the claim to be exclusive. No absolute truth except the proposition that there is no absolute truth. The only heresy is that there is such a thing as heresy. But idolatry is alive and well. And of course, idol our idolatry in the West is more subtle. But it can simply be defined as anything or anyone that we're looking to to give what only God can give. It's centering our lives around any person, place, or thing besides the Lord Almighty. And the Lord calls it detestable. Whether it's sports, 
or stuff or success or children or money or power or pleasure, whatever it is. We don't live for it anymore. We don't live like the pagans do. What's very interesting here is Peter's audience is mixed of Jews and Gentiles. And he says, you don't live like the pagans, but the word is actually the word ethne, which means Gentiles. And so Peter says, you Gentiles, you don't live like the Gentiles anymore because our identity has been changed. We're no longer Gentiles. We're now the people of God. He does the same thing in Ephesians chapter four. Again, Ephesians are a bunch of Gentiles. And he says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. So Gentiles must no longer live like Gentiles. We've been changed. Now we're part of the church, the new covenant people of God, the renewed Israel, as Peter said in chapter two, flip over at chapter two, verse nine, where he quotes those foundational chapters about the forming of Israel. And he says, now you church, verse nine, you are a chosen people. You church are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are the new humanity, so stop living like a Gentile. Stop living like the pagans. And when you do, the pagans will be surprised at your change. Look at verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. They're surprised. Why wouldn't you join us? Man, you've changed. You're different. You're not cool anymore. I was converted my freshman year of college and uh, my behavior changed pretty drastically and we would often go, I was hanging out with the basketball team mostly and we would go to the club pretty regularly and I became a Christian and came back and I just, I just wrapped my Ford Explorer with verses and stickers and decals and I remember my buddy that would often come over and usually high and he said, man, you can't take us to the club no more, not in that vehicle <laughs> and quickly surprise becomes abuse, doesn't it? name-calling. They'll often feel guilty about now your holy lifestyle and they'll get mad and they'll ridicule you and they'll mock you, call you a holy roller, a church lady, Pharisee, holier than thou, Jesus freak, Puritan, Bible thumper, fundy. And sometimes as we come to Christ and as we grow in Christ, we need to cut off old friends. And if not cut off, the relationship and the shared activities must change significantly. The posture changes. We don't cut off relationship, but the posture and the shared activity must change. We must give them something to be surprised about. And often, sadly, they'll cut you off, but don't let it bother you, Peter says. You're in good company, and at the end of the day, God's going to sort it out. You don't worry about you being judged. You don't try to take it in your hands. God's going to sort it out. Verse 5. They'll have to give accounts to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Those who do not follow Jesus will face him as judge someday. And so we rest in him and we endure the abuse knowing he's worth it. We don't live for the praise and affirmation of people, but we live for the Lord. We fear him more than we fear them. And so we continue to be committed to King Jesus. And then we have another obscure verse here in verse 6. For this is the reason 
the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body but live to God in regard to the spirit. What does he mean the gospel was preached to those who are now dead? Who are these dead? Well, there's really two main options. One is people who are physically alive but spiritually dead. That's biblically true, right? Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our sins. Colossians 2 says the very same. We're all the walking dead spiritually until we meet Christ. I just don't think that's what he means in this verse. I think he's talking about those who heard the gospel while they were alive, trusted in Christ, but are now dead. There was lots of concern in the early church about those who would die and Peter's encouraging them that they will be vindicated for enduring suffering. It may look like they're like just the rest of mankind that die. They die in regard to the body, but according to God, they will live. They looked one way to the world. They look another way according to God. They died, but they will live because of the resurrection. So arm yourself with the same way of thinking. And third, the good life is to be focused on King Jesus. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. The end of all things is near, he says. Because of the resurrection, we are in the last days. We are in the last stage of God's redemptive plan. Peter had already said that. Flip over page or two at 1 Peter 1.20. Speaking of Jesus, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times. For your sake. 2 Corinthians 5 says that if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Galatians 1 4 says we've been redeemed from the present evil age. 1 Corinthians 10 11 says that the culmination of the ages has come upon us. It's not the length of the time, but it's the nature of the time. And Peter tells us in his second letter that a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. So you are God's end-time community and so should shape your understanding accordingly. What we believe about the future shapes how we live in the present, right? Like Marty, given a glimpse of the future in order to live differently in the present. So he says the end of all things is near. So what? So speculate about the end times. So bunker down. Grit your teeth. No, he says the end of all things is near. So Therefore, and he gives us four exhortations. The end of all things is near, and he gives us four ways to live. Number one, be vigilant. Number two, love deeply. Number three, be hospitable. And then fourthly, serve. The end of all things is near, so be vigilant in your walk. Look again at verse 7. The end of all things is near, therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Be alert, he says. Have your eyes open. Do not drift, because if you drift, it will be in the wrong direction. Know what time it is in God's plan. We're in the last days, and this should give us a sense of urgency. And some of you keep putting off, right? Yeah, I know. I need to get more serious about the Lord and his church, but I will win. Fill in the blank. Well, after this happens, I'll I'll get all in. And friends, the Lord may not give us that. Today is the day. Now is the time. Be alert. Be sober-minded. This is really a big deal for Peter. He's called it to us a few times. Look at 1 Peter 1.13. Have sobriety in your thinking. 1.13 says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. 
Then he mentions it here in our verse in chapter 4, verse 7. And then look over at chapter 5, verse 8. Be alert and sober of sober mind. This is really important. Be serious in your thinking. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Let's not be mentally lazy. Again, this is a war. The way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. What do we demolish? Arguments. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We are constantly inundated with godless and worldly thoughts. And here the call is to take those thoughts and take them captive and make them obey the rule of King Jesus. We've got to be alert, church. We've got to be sober-minded. We've got to be serious. We've got to be all in. We've got to focus on what matters. We've got to have the long view, focusing on what is eternal. And what is eternal? The word of God and the people of God. So keep your head. The end is near. By the way, oftentimes when it comes to end times, too many have been anything but clear-headed. But Peter says, gain clear-headedness for the sake of your prayers. So that you may pray. He doesn't encourage us to have an escapist attitude and just surrender. No, be sober-minded so that you can better pray. And so you can better pray for what matters. Don't panic, but pray. Luther said we ought to live like Jesus died yesterday, rose this morning, and is returning tonight. So be vigilant. Second thing, he says, love each other deeply. Look at verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins above all this is just so important I cannot say it enough the Bible tells us again and again that love is to be the hallmark of the Christian love is defined as giving of self for the good of another and again Peter wants us to get it he's got five short chapters and notice what he said in chapter 1 verse 22 now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. And in the next chapter, in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, love the family of believers. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another. Jesus said it is the great commandment, love God and love neighbor. Hebrews 13, 1, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in love. Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Galatians 5, 13, serve one another humbly in love for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Colossians 3, 14, over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Ephesians 5, 2, live a life of love just as Christ loved us. John 13, 34, a new command I give you. Love one another as I've loved you. You must love one another. By this all people will know that you're my disciples. On and on and on we can go. Peter says above all love one another deeply, earnestly, steadfastly pursue it. I wonder, does that characterize the way you posture yourselves with the fellow members of Southside Baptist Church? Above all, love one another. Be for one another's good, physically and spiritually. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. This is an allusion to Proverbs 10, 
verse 12, which says, Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. And so love moves us to forbear and to be patient and to not let wrongs done within the Christian community come to their fullest expression. Peter cares deeply about the unity and community of the church, about the potential for division and conflicts. So we love, we assume the best. Do you assume the best? We stand ready to forgive. We stand ready to build up. The end is near, but we will live with our brothers and sisters for all eternity. I wonder if you think about that. Did you know that? This will be our family for all eternity. Let's start practicing now on what it's going to be like to have a community of love. To forgive is to cover. Psalm 32 says, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. And so love forgives. It doesn't take offense. Love absorbs. Just like Jesus, as we've seen in 1 Peter 2. So love deeply. Third thing he calls us to in light of the end is to be hospitable. Look at verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is an act of love. The end is near. The end is near. Have someone over for dinner. And talk about Jesus. Are you being hospitable? When's the last time you had a a fellow member of Southside over to your home to talk about the Lord? Are you practicing hospitality? It can look many ways, different, different ways for different people. One of the needs we actually have at Southside is we've got some awesome home group leaders. If you're a home group leader, raise your hand. Got a few in here. Thank you for serving so well. We've got others that want to lead but don't have a good home to host in. So maybe that's you. Maybe you're like, you know what? I don't really want to lead a home group, but I have a nice home that has a good living room that I will host home groups. Would you let us know? Let Taylor know if you you want to be hospital in that way. All you have to do is open your home, and that will be your gift to the home group leader and to the home group. And isn't it encouraging that it says offer hospitality without grumbling? That tells me that there will be a temptation to grumble when we're hospitable. Those who practice hospitality can say amen. It will cost you, won't it? It will cost you time. It will cost you money. Sometimes you'll get irritable. and Sometimes they won't leave. You can go change into your PJs, start brushing your teeth. It can be hard. But it's worth it. Maybe a first step is to begin to budget. I hope everyone budgets so you can tell your money where to go instead of it telling you where it's going to go. And in part of your budget... Budget for hospitality, and maybe a goal is just to start. Once every other month, I'm going to do something for some fellow member. The key to hospitality is to begin. So practice hospitality, and then fourth, he says, serve. Look at verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. I wanted to title this sermon, Stop Sinning and Start Serving. It says, use your gifts. Every believer has a gift. If you are a Christian, God has gifted you, and you are called to faithfully steward whatever he's given you. I wonder, how are you doing stewarding the gifts God has given you? He says they're varied gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 says there are different kinds of gifts. But the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. And here's the reason, for the common good. 
This is the goal. The Lord has given every Christian in a local church a gift, and you're called to use it for the common good, and we need every aspect. For Southside to be healthy, we need every member using your gifts. And that's what we want. We want health, right? If you're walking along the road and you see a severed toe, you're probably not thinking, that's healthy. No, that toe needs a foot, that foot needs a leg, that leg needs a body. 1 Corinthians 12, 15, now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God's placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? Yes, it is. There are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. We all need all serving and using their gifts. Look at verse 11. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. All believers called to speak. All believers called to serve. I love Ephesians 4 where it emphasizes health. Ephesians 4 is about the health of the church, what he calls maturity, what he calls Christ-likeness. This is the goal. This is the goal for all churches. We want to see churches built up. We want to see our church healthy. We want to see it mature. We want to reflect Christ. In Ephesians 4, he tells us how to do it. He tells us that the ascended Christ has given gifts to his church, pastors and teachers. Our job is not to do the ministry. Our job is to equip you through the word so that you may do the ministry. Ephesians 4.12. Christ, or 11, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, pastors and teachers. Here's the reason. To equip his people for the works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then we'll no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful schemes. Instead, this is for every church member, speaking the truth in love. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. That's what he said in verse 7 as well. Each one has received grace. Every one. And if we want maturity, if we want Christ-likeness, part of it is that we all speak the word, speak the truth to one another. We speak as a representative of God's word to the community. We avoid our opinion and speculation. We're truthful and we speak the words of God. It's really interesting to me, even in solid churches like Southside, how little we actually talk about the Bible and the gospel and Jesus when we get together. I'm all for some small talk, but brothers and sisters, when we get together, let's talk about the Lord. Let's talk about the word. May it be a a regular question for for us to ask, hey, what is the Lord teaching in his word lately? And let's speak the word in truth. And then he says we serve. We serve each other, each of us. This is not optional. 
This is a commandment from your Lord that we are to serve. And serve in the strength that God surprised so that God may be praised through Jesus. And so are you serving? There's many opportunities here at Southside to serve. If you don't know where to start, just ask us and we'll let you know. There's many opportunities. The greatest need continues to be nursery. We've got so many families, so many kids that will continue to be a challenge until we can get more people willing to serve, specifically during this 11 o'clock hour. We're still, in July, we've got about 30% covered. This little yes board over here, this is just the next two weeks of serving Sundays at 11. So would you consider serving in this way because it's our greatest need? If so, let me know. Let Charcy know. Maybe it's something else. What is it? What is your gift? What is it that you delight to do? What is it that you enjoy doing and you're good at and you think, you know what? I can use this for the common good of Southside Baptist Church and get, get busy. Get going. Speak the word and serve. God will give you the strength. And both of these are so that the body will be built up, so that the church will be strengthened and encouraged. The end of all things is near, so live the other's focused life. Did you catch how emphatic that is in these verses? Look again at verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. The end time life is the other's centered life. And here he says it all redounds to God's glory. We glorify God by serving one another. Our vertical life is demonstrated in our horizontal life. As 1 John says, loving one another is the key mark that we truly know the Lord. As he also says, we can't really love God whom we haven't seen if we're not loving our brothers and sisters whom we have seen. This is the end goal of the Christian life. Love and serve one another and thereby glorify God. Another way of saying this is love God, love neighbor. What Jesus called the great commandment upon which all the law and the prophets hang. So we glorify God by catching a glimpse of the end. Like Marty, catching a glimpse of the end and living in the present, we glorify God by being focused and grounded on the gospel, arming ourselves with the mind of Christ and staying laser focused and serious about seeing Christ the King exalted. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever Amen.